Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's online event at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jane Perlez, foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I'm joining today from Seoul. It's my pleasure to introduce Susan Shirk, professor and head of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego. We are here to celebrate and discuss her new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. I have to say, if you want to understand the complexities of what's going on in China today and what's going on between Beijing and Washington, Overreach is the place to start. Susan has been a student of China, a professor who teaches about China, and a government official who has made policy about China as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the State Department. I can personally attest to her role in government. In 1999, we were both passengers on a government plane going to China. I was a lowly reporter in the back of the plane. and She was way up front advising Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, on what to do and what to say when we landed in Beijing. She has written Overreach at a particularly important moment. And the book is right on the money. It lays out the story of the political and economic circumstances in China that have enabled Xi Jinping to make him the most, make himself the most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. Over the next hour, Susan will walk us through the machinations of China's rise to power and its complex politics. We'll have about 40 to 45 minutes of conversation between the two of us, and then 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A from you. If you're watching along with us, please put your comments and questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So Susan, let's get started, as they say. We have just seen the most extraordinary Congress of the Communist Party of China. These are every five-year events. It was the coronation of Xi Jinping, who can now reign over China as long as he wants. No constitutional or term limits. He is basically emperor of everything, the economy, the military, foreign policy. Through the lens of overreach, can you tell us why it was relatively easy for Xi Jinping to establish himself in such a powerful position? Well, thank you, Jane, and it's really a great uh, privilege to have this conversation with you today Um, as someone who has been yourself studying China and Asia for a very long time. Um, Yes, it was surprisingly easy for Xi Jinping to consolidate power and establish this system of highly centralized personalistic rule, Uh, because Deng Xiaoping had sought to institutionalize uh, the Chinese political system to make it more predictable, based more on collective leadership than strongman rule. Uh, And he, Deng Xiaoping, of course, was Mao's successor, who came into power after Mao died. And I was an institutionalist myself. I thought this was 
really uh, something that was going to last forever uh, and that the Central Committee, the Politburo, the Standing Committee, they would be adequate at checking the over-concentration of power in the hands of the leader. Because, of course, that was Deng Xiaoping's objective, to prevent the emergence of another Mao Zedong, who, in Deng's words, uh, carried out over-concentration of power in a way that led to arbitrary decision-making and tragedies like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. But in fact, those collective institutions of the party pretty much just rolled over when Xi Jinping uh, came into power. The uh, First of all, he made the case for the need for a uh, more concentrated leadership because collective leadership under his predecessor, Hu Jintao, had become so uh, corrupt. And it was really the distaste for corruption that gave him the popular mandate among the party elite and the public, too. And so he carried out this massive anti-corruption campaign, which was also a purge of his potential rivals. Uh, but also the fact that Deng Xiaoping really hadn't demaoized enough. So to rely on the collective institutions of the party to check the leader, but without establishing uh, a more authoritative legislature, a parliament, or a legal system to check the party politicians just proved to be inadequate. So it's a combination of Deng's own limitations and then Xi Jinping's ability to make the case that it would take a more concentrated leadership to get rid of corruption and restore the integrity of party rule. But also the anti-corruption campaign was quite popular among among the people. So Xi Jinping had something to, to, to go with. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it has been very popular among the people right up to this day. And in fact, uh, even though the elite, the political elite, the intellectual elite, private business people, uh, Xi Jinping is not popular with them by any means. But uh, with the Lao Baisheng or the masses in China, they thought he was just fine because he was cleaning up corruption. And also uh, his nationalist uh, foreign policy appealed to them because they thought, yes, it's time for China to stand up in the world. So I think we should maybe go back to the beginning and when you first went to China. I have to tell everybody that Susan beat Richard Nixon to China. That's really quite a feat. Um, tell us when you went and why it was that the prime minister then, Zhou Enlai, who you met, said, well, I wish Susan Shirk was president of the United States. Well, uh, that was a pretty exciting moment for someone 22 years old. Um, 
I was a graduate student doing my dissertation research in Hong Kong because, of course, no Americans could go to China. So in order to study what was happening inside China, you either read the propaganda in People's Daily and other official media, or you interviewed refugees who'd left China and come to Hong Kong. So I was there along with other PhD students studying China. And uh, we were invited to visit soon after the ping pong team. And we uh, traveled all over China for a month. And as you note, I had the very special experience of a four-hour meeting with Joe and Lai in the Great Hall of the People with two of the four gang of four on either side of him, Yao Wenyuan and Zhang Chao, checking up on him to make sure that he didn't do anything wrong. So it was uh, quite an experience, yes. My luck has been really good. I mean, when I started studying China, I might never have been able to go. But things opened up just at the right moment. But he did say, I wish Susan Shook was president of the United States. That's that's because his interpreter spent the afternoon with our group. And she and I, Nancy Tong, had headed off. Um, I'm from New York. She grew up in New York. Her father was a U.N. diplomat. And so... Um, she must have briefed him and happened to mention my name, and that's how it happened. So let's fast forward to 1998, and you were on President Clinton's trip to Beijing, and there was a press conference. What happened? Well, it was really a remarkable uh, visit, all in all, because it was one of those times in Chinese political history when things were really loosening up and uh, there was a lot more open political discussion about all sorts of topics. And uh, we, our side, President Clinton, the first lady, had really pushed hard to have the opportunity for us to speak directly to the Chinese public. And so we wanted the press conference to be televised to the public and also for President Clinton's speech to the students at Beijing University to be televised live to the public. And the Chinese side did both of those things. And at the press conference, which is from today's uh, view, when nothing like that could occur today. It just makes you realize how things go up and down. And right now uh, they've gone down. But in the press conference, President Clinton said things. We were urging dialogue with the Dalai Lama on the Tibet issue. President Clinton said, you know, to President Jiang, you know, you really should meet with the Dalai Lama. You would really like him. He's a remarkable human being. And, uh, and, and President Zhang accepted this, you know, and he had the savoir faire to 
kind of joust with President Clinton in a very friendly manner. Extraordinary. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about Xi Jinping is that he's never met with a Western journalist. Even Putin meets with Western journalists, I think, on an occasion once a year, uh, makes himself available from time to time. No, John Zeman had, uh, I've, I've interviewed the person who helped uh, prepare John Zeman for television interviews and things like that. So he he recognized that just as we wanted to speak directly to the Chinese people, he, as China's leader, should speak directly to American people. So he wanted to learn how to do that. And of course, Jiang Zemin had been educated in the pre-49 period in Shanghai at a Western-oriented school. So he knew some English and had a more cosmopolitan perspective than his uh, successors did. So maybe you could contrast that with what happened to uh, President Obama when he went to China in 2008 and wanted to do a press conference. And that sort of fits in with your narrative of how things changed in China. Yes, um, 2006, 7, 8, 9, this was the period it was collective leadership along the lines that Deng Xiaoping had prescribed. And yet, uh, Chinese policy and uh, foreign policy, as well as domestic policy, really changed during that period. And that's what motivated me to write the book, that puzzle of why did that happen. Um, and I, one of the most dramatic events was when President Obama, as you say, went and paid a state visit to China. And the Obama administration had every intention of continuing to pursue an engagement policy uh, with uh, China, but it was a very cold visit. They did not allow the uh, uh, televised press conference or a televised speech by President Obama in large part, according to the people who were involved in negotiating it or attempting to, uh, they were afraid that Obama was such a charismatic figure. Uh, they'd seen it in Egypt when he went and spoke there and, in their view, had kind of aroused what they would view as a color revolution against the authoritarian government there. So they were kind of afraid that the power of his rhetoric would arouse the Chinese public in the same way. So they were quite suspicious of him and didn't allow much um, uh, public view of President Obama. He did, he did speak to, he spoke to students, but in a closed circuit, correct? Right, that's right. It was not nationally televised. And were the student, did the students show any signs of wanting to uh, overthrow the government? I mean, were, <laughs> were the authorities right to be scared? No, they were not right to be scared. And it's, you know, this is, of course, a theme of 
all of my research on China is the deep political insecurity of Chinese leaders because they're not elected by the people. They're chosen by an internal process in, in the Communist Party. And so their sense of their own legitimacy is shaky. And of course, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, brought home this very important and uh, fearsome lesson to them that no matter how large the party is, no matter how popular it may appear to be, it could collapse any moment, either because of bottom-up rebellion or because of a public split in the leadership. I want to come back to that point, but I'd like to keep a little going a little bit, if I can, on the chronology of uh, you were a government official. Um, you went with Madeleine Albright to Beijing in 1999. And at the time, there was a big debate on how to get China into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, I should say. Now there's a lot of there are a lot of recriminations in DC about letting China into the WTO. Looking back, do you think it was the right thing to do? Absolutely, um, because it did stimulate. Uh, at the time, more marketization of the Chinese economy. And uh, the United States really had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Our market was already open. It, you know, um, it's true that there was, a lot of people have written about the China shock after China joined the WTO in the sense that foreign firms invested in China more after China joined the WTO. And this did lead to a surge in Chinese exports, which certainly did have some impact on American workers. But uh, by and large, the Chinese market opened, created all sorts of opportunities for international business uh, and and the, it's, it's true that we oversold China's accession to the WTO because we needed to get congressional support for permanent normal trade relations. So, uh, and you know, all trade agreements are very, very difficult to gain the approval of Congress. So we oversold the political consequences of, you know, that it was going to lead to gradual democratization in China, which, I mean, we actually, we didn't exactly say that, but that was the implication. And that certainly was, has not been true. So that is the, uh, the disappointment, not the economic results. I think they were, you know, still very beneficial for the United States. But there is a lot of grumbling about how uh, China has been able to, quote unquote, steal our secrets uh, because you know we've given them too much access to our market. I suppose you could ask the question, 
has there been enough enforcement uh, of WTO rules? Has China been able to get away, away, quote unquote, away with what people in Washington allege? Well, I, I think the issue is really that the World Trade Organization doesn't have rules about foreign investment about uh, agreements on technology transfer, all, all the issues that we're now most concerned about are really not dealt with in WTO rules. You know, it's yeah. an old fashioned trade agreement, really. So what you would need to do is update WTO to deal with these new issues. Maybe there needs to be a new body. It's, it's, it's antiquated and out, out of step. I just want to remind uh, the audience that if you're watching along with us, please put your questions and comments in the text chat on YouTube. Uh, we'd love to have your questions. Um, you know, China is a big topic and you can, Susan knows a lot and you can ask anything you would like. Um, so let's get to Hu Jintao, who you, who was the leader um, before Xi Jinping and who we saw in a rather sad scene at the last uh, recent Congress being assisted from the stage at the end. Um, he's basically your main guy, the guy who you, the leader who you describe as having set the stage uh, for this accumulation of power by Xi Jinping. Uh, what was it that he did and what has been, what were the specific outgrowths of his, of his rule? Well, I believe that Hu Jintao was a well-meaning leader who um, ruled, but he was first among equals. He wasn't a very forceful leader, and the standing committee was expanded to nine members, uh, including the uh, security czar, who was the head of what I call the control coalition, meaning the intern? We got a sound here in the background. Yeah, okay. The internal security police and the propaganda department, the military. So the control coalition hijacked policy as one of the members of the collective leadership. And, um, and so Hu Jintao's first term was actually quite impressive. It was peak freedom of information in China. Um, as you will recall, uh, the, we had investigative journalism. We had quite a lot of public debate on the internet and social media. Weibo was very popular then. Um, and they tried, of course, this is after the fall of the Soviet Union, they tried to create a form of authoritarian governance that was more responsive to the people. Um, but uh, there were, it was also, by the time of the second term, a time that we saw these sharp changes in foreign policy in the South China Sea, where China started um, asserting its maritime claims by bullying the other claimants. 
uh, and the United States uh, surveillance ships that were sailing through the South China Sea. Uh, and that really uh, changed the narrative of the outside world about was China going to be able to rise peacefully or was it a more assertive, even aggressive rising power? And then internally, as I mentioned earlier, we also saw this tightening up over social life, over the media, as well as the state role in the economy got stronger. So it's like Hu Jintao kind of lost control of things. He lost control of the military even. You know, and there was um, when the American Secretary of Defense came to visit, there was a test of a new uh, stealth air, airplane that uh, the Chinese did at that very moment when the Secretary of Defense was there. Uh, the delegation considered leaving before meeting President Hu because it seemed sort of a slap in the face to test your new plane at the time the Secretary of Defense from the United States was there. He decided not to, but he did raise the issue with President Hu. He, and he said, you know, the, the press is going to ask me in the press conference when I leave here, um, was this the Chinese trying to send you a message by testing this plane, a military jet at this time? And so President Hu was surprised to learn that the test had occurred. And he said, he turned to his left and said, is that true? And it went right down the line of the generals. Um, and so that was very embarrassing. To but also very revealing. Very revealing that they had not just not told him, but not briefed him because for sure there was going to be a question about it. So they were basically undercutting their civilian leadership. And there are a number of similar examples of lack of uh, Hu Jintao's control over the military. So it's a very messy, decentralized um, uh, kind of administration. And as a result, each one of the bureaucratic interest groups went its own way in trying to build up its own budgets, its own power, and nobody questioned. They didn't question one another. In fact, they had a kind of log rolling in which they just went along with one another, and Hu Jintao didn't discipline them at all. And that is why you started to see overreach during that period. You mentioned the South uh, China Sea and how under who the military, Chinese military started to assert its claims and later on they started to build artificial islands which and then put military installations on these artificial islands in one of the most important waterways in the world. And now I just saw recent pictures taken last week by a photographer who was given Filipino photographer who flew over the islands and they are now just chock-a-block 
full of buildings. Um, uh, you can see uh, weapons. You can see soldiers. So back then, in two thousand and what eight nine, you're talking about what could the? It, it seems to me that the United States could have started negotiations with the Chinese military, which was much weaker at the time, and said and started a set of negotiations that these are international water, islands are in international waters, they're not China, they're not China's sole prerogative. Um, let's work out something here. I, I never understood why there were, were, were not negotiations to try and get the Chinese to be more responsible in international waters. Yes, well, of course, the islands were not built until the Xi Jinping period. So the plans for the these big um, reclaimed land or really artificial islands, because they're on top of tiny little rocks, um, uh, the plans for them had been made for a long time, but under Hu Jintao, they didn't, they actually didn't do it. But when Xi Jinping came into power, he took the plans off the shelf and carried them out. And um, he did commit to President Obama, Xi Jinping did, that he would not militarize them. But he went back on that pledge uh, very quickly. And so that actually is a topic that should be brought up today for sure. And I think that... Um, and maybe it will be brought up when the two presidents meet in a few weeks. And it's all done. It's over. It's finished. I mean, China now has and they built built all this military equipment, and you know they're a danger to not only the United States but allies. Well, yes, but you know there are possibilities for freeze or ultimately some kind of demilitarization of the region in the future. So there are still plenty of things to talk about and to try to prevent things from continuing to get worse. I think one problem uh, back then in the mid uh, first decade of 2000 um, of the 21st century is that the United States, in a way, doesn't have standing, you know, because it really is an issue between China and the other claimants. And um, and ASEAN itself, uh, every time they try to discuss it in ASEAN, and the United States was, for sure, in 2010, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was there and raised this issue. And uh, the Chinese foreign minister, you know, lost his temper. And uh, because we had been talking with the other claimants to try to put pressure on China to uh, stop the bullying. And, uh, but ASEAN could not get agreement on what to do. I think was it's a collective action problem among ASEAN was one of the impediments. So let's turn to Xi Jinping, who's really the man of the moment, we might say. Um, he's got full power. 1.4 billion people are his constituents. 
he's incredibly ambitious for his own longevity and for the longevity of China. And he looks to be really powerful. But is he really? What is the nature of his power, Susan? How do you describe it in Overreach? Well, I think uh, Xi Jinping has taken Overreach to a greater extreme than we saw it under Hu Jintao. And when I, you know, the notion of overreach is to take things too far, to do them in an exaggerated way, in a manner that then comes back to harm yourself, to be costly to itself. So, you know, overreach is a problem for China, not just a problem for the United States. And, of course, other countries as well. Uh, So Xi Jinping has established a kind of system in which this top-down pressure on other officials because of the anti-corruption campaign that he has been waging from the very first days he was in power and continue right up to the eve of the 20th Party Congress a week ago, and now has become a permanent purge, which is what Brzezinski called it in talking about the Soviet Union, Zbigniew Brzezinski, our former national security advisor and uh, Soviet politics expert. Because what we see is that the Uh, internal police and disciplinary bureaucracies that actually carried out the purge in the first two rounds have now themselves become the target of the third round. I mean, these are people who are so trusted by Xi Jinping that he had them investigating the head of the control coalition And he sent them to Wuhan in the first phases of the COVID epidemic. So, uh, but now, no matter how loyal you appear to be to Xi Jinping, he always suspects you because the pressure is so intense to prove your loyalty by bandwagoning on Xi's policies taking them to a greater extreme than he might even originally have intended. Um, But then he suspects and he talks about two-faced officials who, you know, are only mouthing the words and pretending to be loyal. So there's this intimidation and pressure. The officials are competing with one another to move up, and to do so, they have to uh, overreach in the way they carry out his wishes. So um, is it stable? Is it strong? Um, Looking at the way it looks after the 20th Party Congress, when he has surrounded himself with loyalists, he got rid of all the retirement age rules as well as the term limits in order to keep the people he trusts the most, at least for the time being, right around him and get rid of 
the leaders who might question his choices. Um, I don't think it's particularly stable because there's such an absence of power sharing. The other politicians in the party must be tremendously frustrated. And if they could figure out a way to do it, I think they would much prefer to have a system with more collective decision-making than we have today. Does he trust anybody? He appears to trust only those people who worked with him before he had such tremendous power. In other words, people he worked with before he was general secretary of the party and China's preeminent leader. So those are mostly people he worked with as a provincial leader as he was moving up the system. And you can see from his point of view that he basically believes that the people who act loyal after he has become so powerful are just really opportunists who are trying to cover their own skin. You know, um, Mao himself was aware of the phenomenon of when you have this cult of personality, you have a fetish for loyalty, that means that you're not sure whether or not people are genuinely loyal. So uh, I have this wonderful quote uh, that I mentioned in the book in which Mao, speaking to Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh uh, in 1966, said, the more your subjects praise you, the less you can trust them. Wow. That's, that's really... That's, that's and really... I'm sure that Xi Jinping has the same perspective. That's really incredible. So what do you think is the nature of the underground resistance? I think the nature is, uh, first of all, a criticism of the self-defeating results of Xi Jinping's policies, that he has made bad choices. Um, Particularly on COVID, do you think? Do you think? The, do you think zero COVID? Certainly zero COVID. I mean, and zero COVID and the lockdown in Shanghai are probably the first time that we see that the public is starting to get frustrated with Xi Jinping. Previously, I think that was more an elite phenomenon. But now I'd say, I mean, actually, we need to bring surveys in that we have at our China Data Lab. We have some surveys to try to see if the public is starting to lose confidence in Xi Jinping. But we don't know really for sure. But um, uh, so his decisions, not just zero COVID, though. Um, it's also the fact that his foreign policy and wolf warrior diplomacy and economic coercion against Korea and Australia, Lithuania, Norway, you know, all the countries that haven't gotten on board with what are essentially Chinese Communist Party domestic positions on issues related to 
Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Taiwan, and um, have alienated other countries so that there is this global backlash. Um, and then the crackdown on private business. The crackdown on private business, which has meant that unemployment, especially the unemployment of college, recent college graduates, is for the first time in years a big problem in China. And uh, growth has slowed. And instead of pragmatically adjusting economic policy to sustain growth and improve living standards, we see a leader and a system that is um, putting loyalty, national security ahead of economic development. So do you think it could unravel? Could this unravel? Could Xi Jinping's rule unravel in the next couple of years, do you think? I think, I, I, I mean, it's not likely, but it could. In other words, I can't tell you what will happen, but when it happens, I won't be surprised. And I believe that it the problem is mostly the uh, dissatisfaction of other politicians in the party. It's not the masses are, you know, um, uh, organizing some kind of revolution against the party. It's, it's, although the, I can't believe that the middle class is really very enthusiastic. Um, these are people who have been traveling abroad, sending their children abroad. Um, they've become consumers and quite cosmopolitan. And now because of Xi Jinping's policies, they're learning less English in school and learning more political ideology, Marxist ideology in school. Also, well, they're stuck at home. They can't travel. Yes, and they can't travel. They can't get a passport to... Uh, so, uh, but I do think that splits in the leadership are a more likely... Um, well, actually, most authoritarian regimes fall top down, not bottom up. So, exactly. uh, so the weaknesses, the fragility, is really at the top. That's, so, which one of the six new standing committee members uh, is going to make the break? I wonder. Definitely not winning. Yeah, I mean, I. You know, Xi Jinping constituted the new standing committee to insulate himself from the risk of a coup as best he could. Um, so, you know, where the resistance comes from, I can't say. Maybe it's retired officials or officials who are forced to retire. Um, maybe it's the families of all those people who were put in jail, the you know, uh, thousands, uh, almost 5 million officials have been investigated and disciplined. If I was thinking, I'd be very scared of those people. 5 million, a lot. 
Yeah, well, there and so there are a lot of people in the politically elite who are extremely dissatisfied with Xi Jinping, I would say. And my own interviews, which come through in the book, I I report on these, you know, are senior party historians, people from the party school, you know, who themselves are really um, very unhappy and they see Deng Xiaoping's legacy being ignored. Yes, I thought they were very candid. The book is really full of uh, some of your friends from the party historians who are really dismayed at what's, at what's unfolding. Yes. Um, we have a few minutes before we go to the questions, and I just wanted to ask you to put yourself into a familiar role um, as government official, maybe slightly more elevated than you were before, but imagine that you are P- President uh Biden's national security advisor, and you're about to go off to meet Xi Jinping uh, in Indonesia at the G20 next week. Uh, what's top of agenda uh, for Biden? You, Susan, you're his national security advisor. What are you telling him? Well, I think the most important thing is to explore whether or not diplomacy can influence Xi Jinping anymore. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that question myself. I'm, I'm kind of agnostic about it. But we haven't had any serious diplomacy with the Chinese government for six years, the entire Trump administration, really, and the Biden administration. So I think we need to test that. Um, and uh And, you know, the Chinese side is now convinced Xi Jinping has has, uh, a narrative that the United States, it doesn't matter what China does. The U.S. aims simply to degrade China's capabilities to contain it and to keep it down. So I think we have to communicate very clearly that there's still some goodwill in the relationship and that uh, it's really about China's own policies and its own behavior. And therefore, we should test it by talking about, for example, market access. Let's go back to some of the core trade and investment issues that the complaints that we've had about technology and other dimensions of that. Let's also try to restore the visas that we used to give one another's journalists, uh, students, um, uh, you know, at the people to people level, we've uh, devastated those people to people ties. And it's not just COVID that's done it. It's also government action. So I think that's another area that we should try to negotiate. We also need to talk about global health. You know, COVID became a kind of third rail in Chinese politics. Um, But we need to restore some ability to work together on these issues because 
just as is the case with climate change. If the United States and China can't work together on these issues, there's no way to get global cooperation on them. So, and then before the uh, meeting in Indonesia, I think it's really important for the national security advisor or the secretary of state or conceivably the president himself to speak publicly to Americans about, and to Chinese, what are the goals of our China policy? And to make clear that we're not, uh, we don't see ourselves as already at war with one another. And we uh, want to try to restore some ability to work together on these global issues. And it really uh, will depend on whether Xi Jinping and his system, which has led to overreaching, can uh, moderate itself and exercise self-restraint. I think you're much more optimistic than I am about what can be covered at this coming summit, but let's see. So we have a couple of questions here in the uh, chat box, uh, both uh, quite provocative in a way. The first question is, is gradual democratization of China still a goal that the U.S. wants to push? And if so, what can the U.S. do? And would it get worse before it gets better? Well, um, you know, we oversold WTO entry as the key to political reform and democratization, but democratization has actually never been a goal of U.S.-China policy. I mean, people have been much more um, practical, realistic about this, and didn't really expect democratization to occur anytime soon. I think the uh, human rights issues are a genuine concern of American people and people in other parts of the world. And so they're always going to be on the agenda of the relationship. But uh, I, my experience in government gave me, uh, led me to draw the conclusion that the only way human rights treatment is going to improve in China is when it's the demand comes from Chinese people and that the international community will never be able to do this uh, through their actions. Even, you know, we can sanction people who use Xinjiang cotton, but frankly, most of the Chinese public stands with their government on Xinjiang. Exactly. Even the most liberal members of the Chinese public, small L liberal. Yeah, so it just leads them to buy Chinese um, running shoes rather than Western ones or sportswear. Um, so it's not really going to change anything. 
Yeah, we should get to this next question, which is interesting. What are some reliable, accurate data sources to analyze Chinese politics? Since it mainly functions as a black box to outsiders and the nature of politics there is a lot of rumors. So the person is asking how to accurately analyze Chinese politics. What data to use? What do you use? Well, what I do is I spend, or at least I used to before COVID, spend a lot of time in China doing interviews with people from different agencies, officials, political advisors, military people. You know, I act like a journalist does, you might say, and uh, I rely a lot on the interviews that I've done really ever since um, I first started studying China by interviewing refugees in 1971. Um, also, we do surveys, uh, but those surveys are useful mostly for public opinion, not to analyze what's going on inside the black box. But, you know, it's, it's, I think that my book does reveal a lot of information to readers about how things function inside the black box. But even so, there are many things I don't know because this, the emphasis on secrecy is so intense that it is really very difficult. Uh, and of course, that makes China also less well-trusted by its own citizens or by people outside of China because it insists on secrecy, whereas look in America, our politics are an open book. <laughs> well, talking about politics, someone here asks, what is at stake in the U.S. midterms for relations with China? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, right now, there is a bipartisan consensus that China is a greater threat. And... So the partisan differences between the two parties are not that clear. Um, and of course, uh, this is true in other parts of the world too. If you look at the Europeans now, which is, I think, a very good uh, evidence that the problem is really the way China has been acting. Um, has provoked this backlash. You know, it's not that a problem only of our own domestic making. Uh, the backlash, I'd say, if, if the Republicans take both houses and we have divided government, um, it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a tougher U.S. policy toward China, and it'll be a big challenge to Xi Jinping. I mean, in my view, China itself could turn this around through its own choices. I mean, one of the main themes of my book is none of this is inevitable. It's really about human agency and the choices of politicians. So um Obviously, it's both sides have to do that, but uh, it's going to be much tougher if... How tough can it get? 
Yeah, well, that's a good question. Well, one thing that's coming down the road right now, I predict, even though it seems so radical, is uh, restrictions on American investment in firms operate uh, Chinese firms and foreign firms operating in China. Capital controls. You know, yeah, would be, be, when has the United, United States, States done, done that in the past? past? Never, what, what almost be? never, never. We've never, we have export controls. Right. But capital controls, it's unprecedented. And I guess uh, particularly because there was nothing to invest in in the Soviet Union, but there is plenty to invest in in China. Yeah. yeah. So it's, um, which I, I don't, you know, I certainly don't support those actions. I believe that uh, we may threaten sanctions to give leverage in a negotiation to try to get China to moderate its policies in one way or another. But to simply whack them with extreme sanctions without a clear link to some particular policy or behavior, I think is not very productive. And what it leads to is what we see in China today is a growth of anti-Americanism, where they believe that we are just completely hostile We've effectively declared war on China, a cold war, and nothing they do is going to make any difference. Well, you know, that's a dangerous kind of situation. Talking about danger, you know, Susan, we haven't talked about Taiwan. And one of our audience members asks, what are your thoughts regarding China's plans in Taiwan or for Taiwan now that Xi Jinping has consolidated power? Well, you know, previous Chinese leaders have actually been quite prudent in not using military force against Taiwan. And in the case of Hu Jintao, have really extended a kind of olive branch to the people of Taiwan uh, by promoting economic and social integration across the strait. Um, Xi Jinping, you know, I'm, I'm concerned because I don't have the same confidence when I look at Xi Jinping's other policies that he will have the same prudence. On the other hand, every Chinese leader uh, has got to think that if he makes a military play against Taiwan and loses that will be the end of him and possibly the end of Communist Party rule in China because the people would rise up. And I mean, this is, it's probably a myth. It's probably not even true, but people in China certainly believe it. So that is a, I mean, that's one strategic myth I want them to believe because that uh, causes them to be cautious. So um, I feel strongly that we need to strengthen Taiwan's military deterrence. And the United States has, uh, is doing that. And what's striking is that the Japanese 
really for the first time now are viewing the uh, security of Taiwan as part of their own national security. So the Japanese are contributing to that deterrence posture. But a lot of the things that our politicians do vis-a-vis Taiwan are purely symbolic to show how much we love Taiwan. And that actually is highly provocative to the Chinese government in Beijing and the Chinese public. And, you know, by showing these acts of love toward Taiwan may actually provoke exactly the kind of military attack we really want to avoid. We have time for just one last question. So I'm going to ask it if it's okay. And it's uh, not, I I would love it to be from your book, but uh, your book is background to it. uh, Overread, I have to emphasize, you must go out and buy it because if you want to understand more about what we've been talking about, uh, Susan really lays it out with thorough research and understanding of history. But very quickly talking about politics in the United States, Um, If the Republicans do sweep the House and the Senate, do you think there's a danger that there will be more provocative uh, statements about Taiwan calling for Taiwan's independence? And if there is, what will that do? Yeah, I mean, the probability of a uh, mainland attack on Taiwan go way up if uh, there is a declaration of independence or any kind of position from the United States of supporting Taiwan independence. It will be very, very difficult. It would be difficult for any leader in Beijing not to Uh, try to prevent that. You know, as long as they think there's a possibility, ultimately, of some form of peaceful reunification, you know, some kind of loose confederation that they can declare success or, you know, stabilize the situation across the strait, then they can be patient. But if we really put a thumb in their eye directly with support of Taiwan independence, then they'll think, well, no point in waiting any longer. It'll be highly, very dangerous. Well, on that um, gloomy note, I have to say that we, we, our time is up, but it's been a very upbeat conversation and the book is really amazing. And so our thanks to Susan Shirk, author of the new book, Overreach, if I can just add, the best you can buy on China, very, very topical. And we'd like to thank the Commonwealth Club's Asia-Pacific Affairs Forum for supporting the event. And thank you to our audience for watching and participating and for putting forward your questions. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club, please visit commonwealthclub.org-online. Thank you, and thank you, Susan. Well, thank you, Jane, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club and to our audience for the opportunity to have this conversation. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.